You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship this morning. I'm excited to look at God's Word together with you. Uh, So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, and uh, I hope that you do, Make sure to bring one every week because uh, that's what we will do during this time is literally walk through the text. Uh, You can grab one underneath the row in front of you or the row beneath you and you can use it and you can take it home with you if you don't have a Bible. Um, We want you to have one. This is the section in Luke chapter 15 that the Lord in his providence has given us today as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. Uh, Now before we read, before we seek to understand this text, uh, before we seek to understand the doctrine that it teaches, that is the, the teaching from the word that it gives, before we seek to apply its truths to our lives, let's recite this month's corporate memory verse uh, during the month of October, we will memorize 1 John 5.20 as a church body, and I may do some teaching on this verse throughout the month, but as we begin this month, let's simply recite this verse aloud together. You ready? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let's say it again. Ready? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Wonderful. I pray that this verse this month will inform us and transform us through committing it to memory. So let's now move and turn our attention to Luke's gospel. Uh, Let's read the section that that God has given us this morning in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And I know many of you are shocked. You said, we're going to cover all these this morning? Yes. It's unique for us, but... We're going to do it. You ready? Verse 11, Luke chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What an incredible passage. Now, what we're seeing here in this particular passage is God's joy in salvation. God's joy in salvation. That is the particular doctrine that's being made known in this text. God's joy in salvation. That is to say this, when God embraces a sinner, when a sinner turns from their sin, they realize their sin, and then they turn from their sin, and then are forgiven by God through Christ, and therefore are saved, this brings God joy. This passage shows us God's joy in what is called salvific repentance. You could say that this passage teaches an area of soteriology, which is what the Bible teaches about salvation. And if you were to put this into subcategories, under the heading of salvation, this passage would make clear a few things. The condition of the sinner before salvation the necessary repentance of that sinner for salvation, the forgiveness of God in salvation, the joy of God in salvation. This is all that this passage teaches. You could also say that this passage teaches important aspects of theology proper, which is what the Bible teaches about God himself. Those subcategories would be God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's joy, and so on. This passage teaches us a lot about God, right? So not only about salvation, but about God. And all of this salvation and the joy of God in salvation, all of this is realized through Jesus Christ. That's how the sinner comes to God. They realize their sin. They turn from their sin. They turn to God through Jesus Christ. First, you must Agree with God about your condition, about your sinful condition, your guilty uh, condition before him. And then when you recognize that, you agree with God about your sin and you turn from your sin to God through Jesus Christ, the Father rejoices. The Father rejoices in a repentant sinner who is saved. You could also say that it's when someone embraces the high cost of being a disciple of Christ, which we've seen in this chapter. When someone embraces that, when when they turn from from their sin, they're forgiven by God, they're transformed by his spirit, the father rejoices. God seeks and saves the sinner. Listen, he desires for goodness and for righteousness to be in your life. He, He desires this to be in the heart of the man. He rejoices when a sinner comes to a a knowledge of the truth, right? At some point, a a believer in Christ has come 
into the knowledge of the truth. They've seen the truth in the pages of the word of God or heard it preached, and they said, that's the truth. And then they turned from their sin and were saved. This 1 Timothy 2.3, it's up on the screen. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a what? A knowledge of the truth. God loves, God celebrates, heaven celebrates when the sinner repents and is saved. He doesn't want the sinner to stay as they are, but he rejoices when they repent, when they turn from their sin and turn to God. When the sinner, by the work of the Spirit, understands their depravity, understands their sin, their guilt, their wickedness, their evil, that's what the words that the Bible uses for our sin. It doesn't just talk about our failures or our shortcomings. It says we are guilty before God. We engage in wickedness and evil. We might think, you know, we might uh, use um, uh, different terms to describe that, right? Euphemisms that kind of take down uh, the, the idea of sin just a notch so that we wouldn't be as guilty before God. But when we call it what the Bible calls it, what God calls it, and we realize our guilt and we turn to God and we trust in Christ and, be sa- and t- to be saved, God rejoices in this. Look at what Ephesians 2 says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is the condition of anybody who's not in Christ. They're dead in their trespasses. They're following the course of this world. They're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is how we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature... This is what we were before Christ. This is the truth. Children of what? Wrath. Like the rest of mankind. That's everybody's condition before Christ. And when the sinner realizes this, that though they were created by God, meant to live under his sovereign reign and rule, they were designed and assigned to love him rather than the created things, as Romans 1 tells us, But then we exchange the truth of God for lies, as it continues to tell us, when we realize this sinful nature, this sinfulness, that we are carrying out the desires of the flesh, and not only the desires of the flesh, but the desires of Satan. That's who we all are before before Christ. John 8 says this, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. When the sinner sees their sin in this way, that it's a rejection of God, it's an offense towards God, it's on a road to devastation, there is punishment for the sin. And when they turn from this sin to God's mercy, to receive this mercy and this forgiveness in Christ, to be transformed By his spirit and his word, when we embrace this cost, God rejoices. And what he does is he brings us into this kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his, listen, his beloved son. That's what Colossians 1 tells us. Listen, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? Into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. This makes God joyful. This is what the passage describes. The heavenly beings are also joyful, not just God himself. Now you might say amen and amen, but listen, if you are here in your sin and you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, if you've disagreed with God about your condition or if you've, uh, you've called it something else, Well, God doesn't rejoice in where you sit currently. He rejoices when you repent and trust in Christ and are saved. That's when he will rejoice. So this is what the passage is teaching. God's joy and salvation, and this is really part two. That's why I've entitled this message, God's joy and salvation, part two, (laughs) right? Last week, here's what I taught you. I taught you that one of God's communicable attributes 
That means that it's an attribute he has and that we share as his creation, but we share it to a far lesser degree. That's a communicable attribute of God. We share the same thing, but we share it to a far lesser degree. One of these communicable attributes is joy. God is described in the Bible as being joyful. And he's also described as being a, a, a savior, right? And so the scripture teaches us God rejoices when he does his saving work through Christ. So we must understand this truth. Listen, this is what God wants from you. This is what God wants from me. This is what God desires of the world, to come to a knowledge of the truth, to recognize their sin, to turn to Christ in mercy, to receive forgiveness. He desires this for you. He desires this for the lost people around you, to embrace him as Lord, and he rejoices over, over this. So, Listen, let me tell you, so many people, so many people believe that they are right before God on their own, that they're right before God on their own, that they're inherently good people. So many believe that, and so many turn away from God's invitation in order to live a life on their own, and God calls that sin. So many remain blind to their sin, blind to the need to repent, blind to the need to be forgiven, blind to the need to receive God's mercy in Christ, blind to the fact that they are created to live under his authority for his glory. And they're just on their own, living as their own Lord, and believe that God will receive them in the end, and he will not. The scriptures are clear. So this is what Jesus is making clear. Now, before we just preview the divisions of this text, and it will be clear and easy for us to walk right through it, let me just give you a, a brief few minutes of context before I, I give you this. Let me show you what led us to the point right before this parable, okay? So here's what's happening. I won't explain all the details that we covered last week in the beginning, um, I explained where we find ourselves in the greater redemptive story, right? We, we kind of find where we are in the greater narrative in this particular text. We've already done that. I, I won't tell you the greater progress of the book of Luke where we find ourselves in that progression, right? But just the immediate context. We're along this journey to Jerusalem now. That's where we are in the book of Luke. We're on the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And Jesus, in this, this journey, he's training his disciples. He's teaching them. It's interesting, too, if you look at the text, there's a real pattern. He gives this call to discipleship, right? If anyone would come after me, let him hate his father and mother, etc. And he does that for the 72 and the 12 before he sends them out. He trains them and sends them out. And then he does this same exact invitation before he just trains these general group of disciples. This is seemingly his way to do it. He gives this invitation, and then he trains, and then he sends out. And he gives this invitation, and he trains, and then he sends out. It's really a pattern that's very clear as you look at this, if you were to go back to chapter uh, 9, right? This is in chapter 10. This is, this is the pattern. And so listen, in chapter 14, as we're on this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus just got finished exposing four major areas of sin that are preventing the Pharisees from coming to salvation, okay? Jesus literally points out to the Pharisees four specific areas that they're blind to, that are preventing them from being saved, okay? And so now Jesus goes on from there in chapter 14, listen, and he gives this invitation this high set of demands. If you want to be my disciple, here's what, it will be, here's what will be required. And you cannot be my disciple if you do not meet these requirements. And that's what he gives in chapter 14. Now listen, as he gives, he goes on from here. The hindrances to salvation for the Pharisees, the invitation to come to salvation he calls his hearers at the end of chapter, at the end of 14, he says, Here, he who has ears, what? Let him hear. Which that means this. Consider carefully 
what I have just said. Now he says consider carefully twice because he gives the invitation. He tells the requirements for salvation. Then he says consider those carefully and come. And then he says once again, consider carefully that I told you to consider carefully the information. Right? So he, he's really telling you, consider this. Don't reject it. Receive it and be saved. Now listen, as we begin chapter 15, here we are. Here we are. Ready? Chapter 15. The tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who respond to his message. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then the very next verse says, if you just take out the chapter, take out the page break, take out the, ver- the, the chapter number, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And the very next verse, what we see is, and the tax collectors and sinners came near. They drew near to what? Here. They're responding in the exact same way that Jesus is inviting them. But here's what happens. The Pharisees, blind to their sin, they grumble. They grumble at Jesus receiving these sinners who have responded to his invitation. They they are grumbling at this. And now what Jesus is essentially doing for the rest of the chapter is telling them why he is embracing the sinners who have responded to his invitation. They're grumbling. And it says, so he told them a parable. And he tells them three, three parables in a row that consist, this entire chapter consists of, right? There he begins this teaching on salvation in chapter 15. And what he's essentially saying is, I'm embracing these sinners who have responded to my invitation because God rejoices when sinners repent from their sin and are saved. I'm I'm embracing these sinners because he desires for this salvation to happen. And he rejoices over it, listen, listen, exceedingly more than sinners who never realize their sin, remain blind to their sin, and never repent. He rejoices over this exceedingly more. So he gives these three parables. Now let me tell you, they're all fundamentally making the same point. All three parables are making the same, same point. He's just saying them in different ways. God rejoices when the sinner repents. That's why he's with the sinner. Understand? But he's also indicting the Pharisees. As he says, then over the 99 righteous who need no repentance, there's not a person on the planet who needs no repentance. He's talking about those who don't realize their need for repentance. He's indicting them. Now listen, let me just tell you the difference between the two parables and then I'll show you the, the three points that we're going to make through the text, and we'll walk through it. Okay? So here's the difference. Or here, here's the, some information about the parables. They're all fundamentally making the same point. And there, yet there's a difference. Listen, listen. There's a difference between the first two and the third. And in the third parable, we covered the first two parables last week. In the third parable, he's just continuing to give the same picture. He's just saying the same thing. He's still explaining why he's with these sinners who have responded. He desires that, rejoices when the sinner repents and is saved, right? But there is a difference here, right? The the third parable, in this way, he explains all of this with just greater detail, right? He explains this now in the third parable with more detail. He explains himself, listen, he explains salvation, He lays all of this out with more detail and more description. He explains God's desire for the sinner to repent, the joy of God in salvation, but he gives it in more detail with more description. He gives the first one. Wouldn't a shepherd rejoice over a sheep that's lost? Wouldn't he go out and find him and rejoice when he's been found? Wouldn't the woman rejoice over a coin that she's found? And and now here he gives it, a picture of a father and a son and the, the son returning. And yet he gives a, a greater description, more detail of each aspect of that process of salvation. Do you understand? That's the whole point of this parable. He's just saying the same thing. God rejoices when a sinner repents. That's why I'm with sinners. That's what I desire to happen, right? Especially the ones who, who have responded. Now, this section is typically called the prodigal son, but if you study church history and, and study all the commentaries, that, that title really didn't come until later. 
The, the title should be the father's joy in the son's repentance. The focus is on the father, right? The, 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 or the title should be the gracious father. That's the point of, of the parable. Now, we see in this parable essential aspects of salvation, okay? Essential aspects. Let me give you some of these. The boy taking what his, or, or let's start here. The boy uh, beginning with his father. Listen, listen now, ready? Representing man being created by God. The boy taking what the father has entrusted in him. Uh, representing man being created by God to live under his authority in relation to him as a steward of God's creation. Listen, yet the boy leaving relation to his father Desiring to be his own authority, using his gifts that the Father has given him for his own pleasure, leading his own life to desperation, destruction, salvation, isolation, it represents the decisions and the actions and the results of sin, right? So it's each aspect of salvation, created by God, meant to be with him, under his authority. He's entrusted to us a relationship with him to be under his authority and to steward his creation. We leave the Father and use his good gifts for our own good pleasure, right? This is the picture here. And then we see the father's desire that the boy would return. And the decision of the boy in this, in this uh, sinful lifestyle, but the father desires the boy to return, representing God's desire for the sinner to repent, right? And then we see the boy who, it says, comes to himself. It comes to a state where he realizes what is offered, listen, what is offered to him back home. He realizes what's offered to him back home. And this is the sinner's hope in God's mercy when they decide to turn from their sin. It's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit who, who desires that a sinner would recognize their sin. That's why he's come, to convict the world concerning what? Why does the Holy Spirit come? To convict the world concerning sin. That's one of the major responsibilities of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin, right? And so, and then the, the representing the sinner turning from their sin to Christ, receiving forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, acceptance, transformation, right? And then listen, we have the Father's forgiveness, representing God's saving work when the sinner repents. And then we have the brother's reaction, the older brother, right? He's one of the main characters in this. We've got the older brother and his reaction, which represents the blind Pharisees once again, who failed to recognize their own sin, who failed to turn from their sin, repent, and, and be saved. So if you remember in the first parable, uh, this is the picture that was shown. The reason I'm with these sinners is because I desire and rejoice over sinners repenting and being saved. Over the ones who don't realize their sin and don't turn from their sin and are not saved. And the same thing with the woman in the coin, and now the same picture is shown here. Now let me tell you one last thing. I tell you a lot of what I need to tell you before I tell you what I tell you for the passage, right? But we need to understand all this. It takes a lot of work to get to the right understanding of this passage, right? So let me tell you one thing. A parable, this is a parable, okay? A parable is a story that comes alongside a truth to make clear a truth. That's what a parable is, right? And, and, but let me tell you, as you're reading your Bible, here's a Bible reading principle. In a parable, not every detail should be pressed, Okay, so this is a, this is a category of, of Bible reading. When you read the, uh, a parable, which is a specific uh, style or genre that Jesus employs, not every detail should be pressed. So not everything represents an exact aspect of the larger picture of the spiritual truth. You can begin to read the scripture by allegorizing everything, and that's not the way that you should read the Bible. You should read the Bible literally. What it says is what it means, right? And yet in parables... There are many things that represent bigger pictures. So here's the three points. You ready? As we look at this. Number one, we'll see the son before repentance, verses 11 through 16. 
Number two, the son's repentance, verses 17 through 21. And number three, the forgiveness, the father's forgiveness and joy in the son's repentance. Number one, the son's repentance. Number two, I'm sorry, the son before repentance. Number two, the son's repentance. And number three, the father's forgiveness and joy in the son's repentance. So to make these headings clear, let's take them one at a time. You ready? Number one. In this passage, as Jesus makes clear God's joy in salvation, explaining to the Pharisees and indicting them at the same time, we see, number one, the son before repentance, verses 11 through 16. Look, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him what? Anything. Now here we start. This is the condition of the lost son, similar to the condition of the lost sheep or the lost coin, and similar to the condition of the one who is unsaved. And this is why Jesus is with these sinners who have responded to his message. Because he desires for them to be saved, this is their condition before they are. Listen, it says, um, it says in, in the beginning, verse 11, Luke writes, and he said. You see that? Luke writes, and he said, once again, connecting us to the previous purposes. He's still responding to the Jewish leadership. He's still responding by making the same point as the previously two parables. He just says it again. He tells one, he tells the other, and he said to them, and he says it again, but now with more detail. Nothing has changed in the Pharisees' attitudes. They said, why are you with these sinners who have responded to your message? In verse 11, he starts this additional parable, and the parable opens up by introducing the, the characters. It gives the father, again, representing God. It gives the one son, the repentant sinner, uh, representing the repentant sinner. And then it gives a second son, which is the Jewish leadership, right? And listen, the, the parable starts with these words. There was a man. There was a man. This is the focus. Listen, there was, this is the focus. Just as though the, the shepherd was the focus of the first parable, the woman was the, the focus of the second parable, this man, this father, is the focus of the third parable, the, the joyful father. You understand? So this is what is happening here. And then verse 12 says this. We see this personal introduction to the youngest son. And here's what happens. This son desires the inheritance that will eventually be assigned to him. You see this? In verse, uh, in verse 11, or verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, what? Give me the share of the property that is coming to me, right? So that his son desires this, and here's why he desires it. He wants to eventually separate from his father and use it for his own pleasure. That's why he desires what his father gives. The Greek here helps us to understand that uh, what is being given here is what will be given to him when his father dies, right? So he said, he said, give me the inheritance that will be mine when you die. Give it to me ahead of time. And what you see here is it depicts the son's lack of love for the father, right? It, it depicts the son's selfishness, it depicts the son's stone-heartedness. I, I mean, it, it picks, depicts all of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we see this, that even the firstborn would receive double the amount uh, of the subsequent children. In Deuteronomy 21, it says this, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So what's even more silly is that this younger son would receive half as much as the eldest, and it surely would not be enough to live for very long, right? Uh, it, that's the folly of sin. 
I mean, how silly to think I'm gonna take this inheritance and go on my own and live out from underneath the authority of the Father. And then in verse 12, here's what happens. The Father graciously provides the gifts to the boy. He provides these gifts graciously to the boy. He divides the property in two. And then verse 13, look at this. It doesn't take long. It says, not many days, what? Later. The youngest son, he gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. You know what the word in the Greek, gathered together, literally means? It means he turned it into cash. That, that's what, the, that's what the, the word here literally refers to in this passage. It's clear. He sold all the property that was gifted to him. He took the cash. He went as far as he could from the father into a distant land, a far country. And in verse 13, it says he squandered his possessions in what? Reckless living. And you know what that word means? It means to just waste it. It means to waste it. He, he used it on things that couldn't bring lasting safety, that couldn't bring lasting satisfaction, that, that couldn't bring salvation. I mean, think about the lost world. Think about before Christ. I mean, if you are living for yourself, you are literally wasting your life. Nothing that you do on a day-to-day basis will attain anything of value in eternity apart from Christ. You are literally walking like a zombie, wasting your life. You have no purpose that will give no lasting salvation. You are not pleasing before God because of your sin. It's just a waste. It's a total waste. And this is what this son does. He literally wastes his life in foolishness, short-sightedness, stupidity, and selfishness. And reckless, and the idea here is wild, debauched living. Verse 14 says this. Then when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. It tells us he spent everything, and then listen, a uniquely strong famine comes. And so listen, the, the, the destruction of his life is a result of his own choices and then also the nature of the world around him, right? Like if you think about the nature of the world around him, it's, it's of course uh, uh, affected by sin. And this man is in his sin and we are told the boy, listen, in verse 14 has no resources, no family. He's separated from his father. And in verse 15, he tries one last attempt to save himself. He goes out to the, and hires himself, it says, to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And you know what this description is of? It's just far more than what meets the eye. This is undoubtedly a Gentile owner. How do we know? And Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd because he owns pigs. And he, and he has the job of caring for pigs. And the boy would be assigned here to go take care of the pigs. And this was not only the lowest job for a Gentile, but this was a disreputable job and detestable job for a Jew because pigs were unclean by Jewish law. So if you look at Leviticus 11.7, and the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the, cur- the cud, is what? It's unclean to you. And so this is, the son has no other options, and he also has no more convictions. He's let go of all of his options, and he's let go of all of his convictions. He's lost everything. He's separated from his father. He's on the brink of death. And we know this because verse 16, it says, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He, 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 not only does he feed the pigs, but he desires to eat the pig's feed. He desires, he's so malnourished, he's so empty, he's so without hope that he, epithemeo in the Greek, intensely desires, it's an idiom for being extremely hungry. He's so hungry that he wants to eat what the pigs 
are eating. This, was his, this is his state. And imagine his, his former state, the option that he had in the beginning. To have the food that the pigs are eating, he wants the amount and he wants the contact, content. That's, the, that's what's uh, being insinuated here. He, he bought, wants both the amount and the content. And what this refers to, what the pigs eat here, is a, either a sweet bean from a tree or a bitter berry that probably has thorns on it. That's what the pigs are eating. So he wants a sweet bean from a tree or a, a thorny berry. That's what he's longing for. And the son desires to have what these unclean animals are eating. Verse 16, it says no one, and in the Greek it's emphatic. It's an emphatic statement. Gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Now let me just tell you, this is the first part of salvation that Jesus is pointing to. As he's pointing his hearers to God's joy in salvation, he first makes clear in this longer description than in the first two parables of the state of the sinner prior to salvation. Jesus is highlighting the depravity of man. The depravity of the sinner, the sadness of it all, the lostness of it all, the sickness of it all, the foolishness of it all, the devastation of it all, the consequences of it all. This is the condition of man. And though you might think, if you are not in Christ, that this is uh, totally over, uh, overemphasizing or totally exaggerating your state, it is not. You are just not seeing as God sees, right? This is the destitution of the sinner before repentance. Every human on the planet is in this state prior to salvation. Are you still there? Are you still there? Is this your state? Every detail, remember, it's a parable. Every detail doesn't have some exact meaning. Don't allegorize the thing. But apart from Christ, you are separate from the Father on the road to death, spiritually and physically. So, there's a second stage on the road to the Father's joy, and that's number two, the Son's repentance, verses 17 through 21. It says this, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In this section, it starts in verse 17. Listen, it says that the son came to himself. It's a phrase that carries the same meaning as what? Coming to your senses. When the, when the son's eyes were open, when he looked around and he realized his state, when he said, this is the truth of my condition, representing the work of the Holy Spirit who opens your eyes to the reality of your sin and your guilt before God and your destruction and your separation from the Father, and then even the hope that still exists at the Father's house if you would come and plead for mercy. When he comes to this realization... Right? That the, that the least, listen, the least in his father's house are more fortunate than those who are outside his, the father's house. When he realizes this, he, he, when, he's, when, he, when he realizes that he's going to surely perish, verse 18 and 19, what a glorious picture. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. This is the picture. Uh, this passage now moves into a, a soliloquy. Rather than an outside observation for, of the narrative, we move into a monologue that speaks from the intention of the person doing these actions. It's the boy. And here's what he realizes. He realizes his true condition. 
He comes to a knowledge of the truth about his situation. He comes to an understanding about his offense towards God. He comes to an understanding of the Father and what he offers back at home. It reveals the, the humility that's necessary. If you're gonna turn away from your sin and turn to Christ, God needs to first bring about humility in your life, that you would admit your sinful condition, right? And then it reveals the confession and an acknowledgement of guilt and a cry for mercy. The boy knows he has lost all of his rights. He doesn't come to the father. He's not planning on coming to the father and saying, here's what I have to offer as my own uh, payment to come back. He says he's lost his standing as a son. He's lost his inheritance. He has nothing to offer the father. He only has a plea for mercy. That's all that he has. He's unworthy to be received. He die, here, here's what it says. He desires to take the position of one of the father's slaves. He's got no claim to righteousness. He's got no claim uh, to this mercy or to this hope. And this is clearly a picture of the sinner's repentance. Can I tell you? This is what it will take for you to be saved. That you would come to God and you would say, I literally have no righteousness before you whatsoever. I am trusting completely in the merit of your son's atoning work for me on the cross for my salvation. And apart from that knowledge, that understanding, that realization, and that response, you will be forever lost in your sin. 1 Peter 2 says this, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is what the son is doing. Jesus has pointed the Pharisees to the condition of man, and now he has pointed them to the repentant sinner. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, as we know. And this leads us then to our third and final point, which is the father's forgiveness and joy in the son's repentance. This is the response, verses 20 through 32. He arose, he came to the father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music, dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked what this meant. He said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry. He refused to go into his father. His father came out and treated him. But he answered, Father, look, these many years I've served you. Look at this. This is the picture of the Pharisee's uh, attitude. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me the young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It brings you back to the idea of chapter 15, verse 1, when the tax collectors and sinners are responding to his message and the Pharisees are standing there grumbling, they're the ones who think that they're righteous and need no repentance. As it says in chapter 15, verse 7. And yet the father says, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was what? Dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. What we see here as we close this out is that when the sinner repents, the father rejoices. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. He desires for and rejoices over sinners who repent from their sin and are saved. That's why he's with the sinners. As the shepherd rejoices over the sheep, as the woman desires the lost coin and rejoices over it when he finds it, shouldn't the father also desire and rejoice over the boy who is near death, who returns home, and shouldn't God even far more rejoice over sinners who repent and are saved? 
So, in verse 20, it says that the son is hoping against hope. To come, meaning this, I, even hope would say don't hope in coming back and receiving any mercy. But he hopes against hope. The son is hoping to come back and yet possibly, verse 20, it says, receive mercy. He rose and came to his father, right? He wants to say, I've sinned. I don't, I'm not longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your slaves. And then here's what the response is. The response exceeds, listen, the response exceeds anything he could have expected. The father saw him while he was still a long way off. It's as if the father is longing for, listen, he's longing for the son to return. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. That's what he will rejoice over. And he instantly reacts with compassion and reception to the son's real, decisive repentance. Right? We can't forget that all of this is a result of genuine repentance. That's when the father rejoices. Not just over the sinner. Don't, don't use that like that. It's over when the sinner repents. And he completely forsakes his former life. Listen, he completely forsakes everything. He's turned away completely. He's come home. He's left everything else behind. And all he wants is his father's mercy. The father initiates, embraces, shows forgiveness, love, acceptance. The father, it says in the Greek, literally falls upon his neck and then kisses him with affection. The relationship is restored. Repentance leads to reconciliation the father-son relationship here depicts God's love. Verse 21, the son confesses his sin. Look at this. It says, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. He does exactly, listen, he does exactly what he said he was gonna do back in verses 18 through 19. He's resolved. He goes to the father, and he confesses his sin. He asks for mercy. And here's the result. Look at John 1.12 depicts this well. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called what? Children of God. This is genuine repentance. Verse 22 results in full rights as a son. Full rights as a son. He says it gives him a, gar a robe. You know what's interesting about this? In the Greek, this is a formal garment which is described in a, a couple of other places. One was the clothes that the angel was wearing when he was sitting on top of, of the tomb. And second, and that's in Mark 16, second, it's used for believers what they are given in heaven in Revelation 6.11. So this boy is given a robe of righteousness. And in, then he gives him a ring, which usually has a seal on it. And you know what that represents? That he's a son. He's a member of the family. And Jesus has in mind even maybe presenting the Holy Spirit, which comes inside at the point of salvation. The scriptures are clear. There's no second point. The Holy Spirit comes in at the point of salvation and seals you as a guarantee, as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. And this is what happens. And then in verse 23 through 24, look at this. Here's what happens. He brings the fattened calf. He kills it. He says, this is my son. He gives the explicit reason for this sacrifice. You know when this sacrifice was given? It was given on holidays. And it was given specifically on the Day of Atonement. That's when a calf like this would be killed. In Judges 6 and 1 Samuel 28, in Palestine, meat was not frequently eaten. Uh, the occasion warranted it. And then all of this, look at this. We see the reason for the Father's joy stated explicitly as we close this out. Look at verse 24. This is my, for this my, what? Son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, what? Found. This is the reason for the celebration. This is the reason 
Because of the salvation of the son, because of the repentance of the son, the son was dead, he's alive, he was lost, he's found just like the coin, just like the sheep. The son's repentance led to a redeemed life. And this is what Jesus has been making clear this whole time. Just as the shepherd, just as the woman, so the father also rejoices in what was lost being found. But here's, let me tell you, as this closes, there's a further indictment of the Pharisees because Jesus tells of the older brother who, like the Pharisees, failed to see their own sin, right? And they think they have no need for what? Repentance. He says, Father, I've obeyed your command this whole time. I've always been with you. The Pharisees had a history of being with God, right? And they, he thought he had no need for repentance. They, they thought they had no need for repentance. And this son clearly is mistaken because in this very action, he shows he has need for repentance. He honors his father with his lips. He might be close to him in proximity. He might be obeying him with outward action, but his heart is what? Far from him. And so verse 25 through 31, we see that the son does this. We'll close with this. Listen, he observes the celebration. He observes the father's embrace of his brother. Now think back from when the Pharisees responded as the sinners and tax collectors came. This son observes the celebration. He observes the father's embrace. He observes that the boy was lost and is found. He's embittered, he grumbles, he's indignant. He speaks of his own righteousness, his own good works. He says he should be recognized. And listen, interestingly, listen to this. You ready? He stays outside the celebration. So he thinks he's an insider, and yet he remains a what? Just like the Pharisees. You understand this? He, sit, he fails to see the condition of his own heart. He doesn't come to terms with his own sin. He doesn't repent. He, he boasts of his apparent good works. He turns from being forgiven. He speaks of the sinful lifestyle of his brother, yet he remains blind to his own sin. The older brother says he has served him. He's never disobeyed. The father looks like he's, he's made to look like he's doing something wrong, and yet, he, in his claims to obedience, he's showing his disobedience. And then in this other son who has been disobedient, yet genuinely repents, cries out for mercy, is received, embraced, and forgiven. Verse 32, last verse. We covered a lot, didn't we? Jesus reiterates the point he's been making. Listen, he says this. Why am I with sinners? Why have I embraced these tax collectors who have responded to my high cost of discipleship that we saw in 14 and are now following me, they're drawing near to here? Because it's, look at verse 32, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this year brother was what? Dead. And now he's alive. He was lost now he's found. This is the point that Jesus has been making. It's fitting to celebrate, to be glad, because these people have turned from their sin and have come to forgiveness before him. So this is what God desires. This is what God rejoices over. This is why God is, Jesus here is with the sinners who have responded to his high cost, because he desires for and he rejoices over the sinner's repentance, which leads to salvation. More than he rejoices over any sinner who fails to recognize their sin, fails to agree with God about their sin, and says, I think God really loves me the way that I am. Right? This can happen in the, in the, on, the, on the far religious end, and this can happen in the, on the liberal end. You, you could get a lot of people who believe God loves them just the way that they are. Listen, God desires for the sinner to repent and be saved. That without that, he's at enmity with God. That's the truth. So God doesn't just desire for them to stay as they are. And this can happen on the self-righteous end, right? God desires for us to recognize our sin and be saved. God rejoices over that. We should understand this attribute of God 
this attribute of salvation. And listen, lastly, you should share this heart that God has as you pursue the lost with the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the point of this. There's a lot of content here, and yet you make the point of this crystal clear. Help us now, God, to turn from our own sin, to hear what you have called us to in the high calling of salvation. Let us respond and be saved. God, let us also understand your heart in salvation, that you desire the sinner to be saved and repent. And God, also let us be people who go to the lost world, the neighbor, the nations, and lead people to you through repentance and faith in Christ. Let us share your heart to see the lost repent. And let us also, again, if we do not know you, repent ourselves and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.